0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Fergus Hines has been in and out of prison more times than he can count. But Fergus is no multiple offender. He's a prison visitor. He sits with prisoners and talks with them about large and small things. He offers advice when asked for and he'll have a quiet word to the authorities if necessary. But often just listening and talking is enough to lower the tension. Fergus Hines knows how to talk with all kinds of people. He grew up in a Dublin pub, which his mum managed after his father died. A pub that Brendan Behan used to drink in regularly. Fergus lived all over the world before he settled in Australia and started a family. He is, to my knowledge, the only man who's ever been a member of both the IRA and the Liberal Party of Australia, serving as an office holder during the Howard Peacock Wars of the 80s and 90s. But Fergus has found nothing so rewarding in his working life as helping incarcerated men and women who hear the old triangle go jingle bloody jangle all along the banks of the Royal Canal. Hello, Fergus. Welcome to you, sir. Thank you, Richard. What gave you the idea to become a prison visitor in the first place, Fergus?
1: Well, like most people, I really didn't think much about prisons early in life. But I got a school reunion magazine one year and there was a chap in there, a lawyer, who described his brilliant career and indicated that he really didn't have much time for other things. And then there was another schoolmate of mine and he described very briefly his career and went on to describe some of the community work he did, including visiting prisoners. And that, I said, I'm going to put that idea away for the day when I have the time, perhaps, to do something in that field. And that's exactly what I did. And eventually, when I retired early, I volunteered to work in prisons, and that's what I did for the first two years of my time in prison.
0: What's the idea behind the scheme? Why have the authorities set that up and what kind of issues did they want it to address?
1: Well, way back in 1976, Justice Nagel had an inquiry into prisons after the reports of a bashing and a riot in Bathurst Prison. And one of the, he made many comments, one of them was that, of course, people are sentenced to go to prison to serve, to be punished for that, but they're not to be punished within the prison and one of the things he thought would safeguard that and perhaps avoid a riot in the future would be to have members of the community go in and the prisoners could talk to them if they had issues.
0: So you help them blow off steam to some degree? Is that the idea? That is the idea. Yeah.
1: Yes, it, it is exactly that. Because often I found in my 16 years as an official visitor that at the end of the conversation uh, when I would say, now what would you like me to do with this? Do you want me to take it up with the governor or what would you like to do? And often they would say, No, no, it's okay, Let, let's leave it. And that probably was the best solution for them is to leave it. But they would come to that of their own mind sometimes. So talking and just getting in the direction of where they could go and that somebody's not employed by corrective services or the police or anyone is simply a member of the community, perhaps a bit older than them. But nevertheless, a member of the community, they can talk to.
0: Just speaking on behalf of myself here, Fergus, I think if I walked into a prison and have someone say, oh, yeah, there, nice to meet you, Fergus, Mm. go into that cell and talk to that angry prisoner, (laughs) I'd be a little fearful. Uh, Are you you fearful doing that work?
1: I was never fearful of it. And I say to people, I'm more fearful standing on the platform of a railway station, (laughs) not knowing who's behind me, than I ever was in prison. I, know, I had no fear. I know some official visitors when they're appointed have described being very nervous arriving at the gates of the prison and going in for the first time and saying goodbye to perhaps to a relative outside. I never felt that. To me, there were people, and that's what they are.
0: What kind of people typically volunteer for this work?
1: Well, often they would be semi-retired or retired because for obvious reasons, other people can't visit the prisons during the week and there's really no point visiting them on Sundays when they have, and Saturdays when they have visitors themselves. So uh, it tends to be retired people. And it's a wide range of people. They're looking for people who have experience of handling people and perhaps solving problems uh, in a calm way. And they come from all levels of society. They can be somebody that was on a local council in the country. Uh, they can be naval officers, solicitors does anything at all that the qualification is how they assess you're going to be able to talk to inmates and they're going to be able to talk to you
0: so you need to be able to have had some experience you try and get the to lower the tension mm. a bit lower the temperature of the room a bit and just see if you can't sort out the problem people with that kind of experience
1: yes well in early in my career i was in the field of auditing And you learned there that you don't rush off if you find something that's not quite right. You don't rush off immediately and make a big thing. You try and resolve it quietly. And that's the whole idea behind it. They don't want people that like writing reports or expect to be able to give instructions because you cannot give instructions to anyone. You can take your concerns right up the ranks to the minister who appoints you in the first place. It's better to start way down the line with somebody that the inmates are dealing with regularly if there's a problem and seeking to solve it there, not try and impose a solution from above, which may have the opposite effect.
0: Do you remember your first day going in as a prison visitor?
1: Yes, I originally went in as a volunteer. I was with a volunteer from Life After Prisons. I know he was a welfare officer from Life After Prisons and I accompanied him around and we met many people. But the first person to I really... Shook me, I suppose, was a young inmate from the islands who had been in a cell suffering from a terrible toothache for quite some time and, you know, being locked up from, what was it, 20 hours a day, being locked in a cell. And there he was. I think that would be awful. And I think that one of the last things I would want to be is locked up in a cell for most of the day with a toothache and thinking nobody's going to help you. Uh, he was suffering. And I loved that feeling of being able to help. Because some inmates, like members of the public, are very good at raising issues, but a lot of other people are shy and reserved. And because we were so informal, we just wandered around prisons. We didn't sit in an office and somebody came in and sat across the table from us. We wandered around prisons, and they'd come up and talk to you. And the usual joke was when i say, how can I help you? They'd say, can you get me out of
0: here? Yeah, and that, then you've got to that, was, that one, right? That was the yeah. standard joke yeah. Yeah. we yeah. had. <laughs> yeah. What were some of the common complaints you've heard?
1: Well, the most common one would be, particularly in the women's prison, complaining about medical services. People would complain about not being able to phone a relative who was in another prison. Placement, feeling they're not in the right prison. All of those issues came up.
0: Tell me about a, a 64-year-old woman you came to see who was in jail for the first time, Fergus.
1: Yes, she she was in her 60s and had found herself in prison as a result of some terrible family brawl and other members of her family were in other prisons around the place and she described to me when she was at the reception desk for the prison and it was at a time when smoking was allowed by officers and inmates that were allowed to smoke and she just simply said to the guy behind the counter, could you please put me in a cell with somebody who is not a smoker. And, of course, he shouted at her and said, you will go where I put you. And this lady indicated to me she raised her hands up like in surrender and said to him, I know, I know, I'm now in your hands. And that, to me, summed it up, because I know later on she would have been subject to a strip search, she would been subject to being in a cell with a stranger, the door locked. All that would be difficult, but I think have somebody deciding every minute of your day, to me, would be, I think, one of the hardest things.
0: How about talking with older prisoners? Do you meet some of the older prisoners who have become institutionalised and are reluctant to even leave the prison?
1: No, I, I didn't come across anyone reluctant, but I certainly came across people who left prison after 20 years and close to 30 years. One inmate, he was talking to me for a couple of years, chatting to me, and then he got released on parole and was placed in a halfway house. And uh, I decided later, you know, I'll go and see, can I go and see him? And so I went to visit him and he'd found a few difficulties because, for instance, they said to him, you've got to get yourself down to the shopping centre. So, of course, he hopped on the bus and tried to pay the busman his fare, and he discovered they didn't take money. Then some wise person said to me, you've got to find some alternative accommodation. You know, here's a man that spent over 25 years in prison, is in good health, is in his 60s, in a city where there's, I believe, there's thousands of people looking for accommodation, and he wouldn't actually have the right references, and somebody suggested that to him. So I farewelled him, and off I went So I wondered about him, but I didn't have to wonder very long because I went back into my usual prison and who was there to greet me? But this chap. He was back inside in prison after all those years. What had happened to him? Well, some Bryce Bark had put him in some sort of a hotel or something. They couldn't find accommodation, so some Bryce Bark had put him in a place up on King's Cross where the noise was terrible from the other tenants in the place, from next door, there was terrible loud music, and it was driving him crazy. So one day he left it and went across down the road and went in and spoke to a police officer, who turned out to be a very compassionate police officer. And they chatted and everything else, and the police officer worked out that because he had left that hotel without checking with the monitors, without without getting permission to leave that hotel, He had breached his parole and police could return him to the centre. And that's what the police officer organised. He was delivered back. So I took it up with the minister. I said, wrote to the minister said, your department can do better. And they did better because the happy story is, a while later he was released. I gave him my mobile number, which I shouldn't have done, but I gave him my mobile number and said, phone me up if you find yourself in another room somewhere. And I did learn through the fine that he settled into the new halfway home and was being treated well. So there's the story. Then there was another inmate getting out after 25 years. And unfortunately, when he got out, the media, of course, got onto his story. I complained to the whoever you do, complained to the media, and said, why did you run a story on this man indicating where he lived? And they said, oh, well, we didn't say the suburb he was living in. I said, you showed some of the local area and you said he'd be going down to the Centrelink on Tuesday to collect the Centrelink. I said, you gave enough clues, but however... So that treatment for that man wasn't very good and I spoke to some organisations and asked them to give him backup outside, but that was terrible because I think he was close to 30 years in prison.
0: Like you said, to do this kind of work, you have to have had a lot of experience talking with people and dealing with people and you grew up in a Dublin pub. <laughs> that's going to be a fine place to meet every kind of person in the world, I would have thought.
1: Well, I think that's the answer to the question. Where did my apprenticeship to do this work start? And it started, I believe, in that pub in Lower Mound Street, Dublin. And watching those people from the unemployed to the war veterans to the elderly, pensioners, tradespeople with good jobs... A lot of people were not so great jobs and few office people like that coming in also. There was a whole range of people. And I can visualize most of those people today. I can actually see because, of course, they sat in the same place every day.
0: (laughs) You write that your dad bought this pub in 1913, more than a century ago. And three years later, there was the Easter uprising. Mm. How close did that street warfare get to your family pub?
1: Within metres, because when it originally started, I don't know if people realised it only lasted a week, this rebellion, but it started in certain areas in downtown Dublin. And it was a couple of days later when the forces were sent in from Britain and they were going to march into the city. What they didn't know was they were marching into a trap because at Lower Mound Street Bridge, just a few metres down the road, The couple of houses there leading into the bridge and facing the bridge, there were about 10 men ready to ambush them. And the soldiers, poor soldiers, kept firing and fighting all day. And at the end of the day, I think six of the eight men were dead, but hundreds of soldiers were injured or dead. And my father was, his brother was living in at that time, and uh, supposedly in the front room, a bullet came in the window, Passed over their heads and went into the wall. And the myth after that was they both owed their baldness to that bullet.
0: <laughs> that spotted their hair. So
1: perhaps <laughs> hereditary wise, maybe I owe my loss of hair to that bullet.
0: <laughs> the uprising was followed by the establishment of the Irish Free State and then Ireland fell into civil war. And this, these are terrible times in the life of Ireland. Was it hard or even possible for your father to keep the peace in the pub during these these awful horrible times
1: well he managed to do it and i think that when i was growing up people didn't want to talk about the civil war very quickly the nation seemed to come to the view because they both hadn't behaved well in the civil war they both had behaved badly so it faded but yes he would have to be diplomatic because many of his customers had been away fighting the First World War and suffering terribly. So many Irish people died in that, a long way from Tipperary, fighting in that war.
0: Fergus, you were the youngest of five children, and your dad died of tuberculosis when you were quite young. What did that mean for your mum and the running of the pub?
1: A woman running a pub in Dublin was unusual because men either didn't like to be seen by a woman drinking in the pub and so it was an unusual thing. But this young woman from the country who never had never left home, really, she got down in pulled pints and worked behind the pub for quite a number of years, now having five children at the same time. So that was the first stage that she sent my two sisters away to boarding school. So... That's how boarding schools,
0: I think, came into our life. It started at that period. Then a friend of your dad's came into your life, a man named Jim Bean. Mm. How was he able to help out the family?
1: Well, firstly, my father was a very wise man. He taught my mother about the pub and warned her, for instance, about not having anything favours from any police. He showed her how to write up books. He taught her bookkeeping when he was in his bed. Uh, he prepared as well as he could. And then he found this man, young man in his early 30s to become the bar manager. And that was a very good choice. Jim Bean more or less took over. Um, My mother didn't have to work behind the counter then. But she, of course, got ill herself, not surprisingly, shortly afterwards. And Jim Bean would go to the hospital and she'd sign the checks and everything else. So uh, a romance started later. And two years later, they were married. So he took on a very... Big task, my stepfather, because he had five stepchildren. That's a lot.
0: (laughs) What was your first experience of crime and police work in Dublin?
1: Well, my first experience was about 10 years of age. Uh, We had a three-storey building and I was on the top floor in a bedroom and one morning this terrible bang happened on the roof just above me. The ceiling was quite low because it was the top of the house. And I looked out and these two men had leapt off their roof, down onto the next level, and then disappeared. And these were two prison escapees who uh, had been living in our street and breaking into our local post office and other things. Uh, and the police got word they were there and made this attempt to arrest them, which they bungled very, very
0: badly. And what was your stepfather's role in all of this drama? Well, driver? he
1: jumped out of bed and... He caught hold of one of these people.
0: By what? To the,
1: there were bars on the window, right. and, he held on the, and he held on this, and this guy is saying to him, let me go, let me go. I'm the Garda, I'm the Garda. That's the, the word for police. <laughs> uh, I'm the Garda. And then he broke free of my stepfather, and off he went. So there were three people in the flat, two were escapees, and that morning one of them was shot and captured, but two blokes came down our house, One of them eventually just gave up and he just sat in the cottage and waited for the police to come. But the other one, he escaped and wasn't rested for quite some time.
0: It must have been incredibly exciting uh, to live through that. Were you terrified or excited by the whole thing? Oh, excited.
1: But the amazing thing about it, my parents never referred to that episode and the press came and tried to get my stepfather to give an interview, but he declined, even though he was offered 30 bob, he declined. They never talked about it.
0: They just took it in their stride. So later in life, you got interested in this incident well, with these, yes. these, these crooks. What did you find out?
1: Well, well, this is it. I, I was going back to Ireland for a holiday and I thought, I'll try and track these things down. And so I really set out to find out what happened to Laverty, Nolan and Nugent as the three names. And Mr. Laverty broke out of prison again later on. He was a wizard. He later on just had normal jobs in England, working on the railways and things like that. He went on the straight and narrow. He went straight. Right. An, you see, he wanted excitement. He was a young ah. man, and he deserted from the Irish Army, and he was looking for excitement. The other guy, he ran a book cart near Conor Bridge in Dublin until he died. And the youngest of them, who actually wasn't an escapee, he was just helping them. He ended up working for the Seamen's Institute in Dublin, and he died. So I got the story of what
0: happened to Laverty Nolan and Nugent. So growing up in this pub, did you become aware over time that uh, the kind of great range of humanity that might be sitting in the pub, there might be some tragic drinkers in the pub, and uh, getting a sense of the broad swathe of humanity that was coming through the doors of the pub?
1: Oh, you certainly did. And in those days, there were very few... Welfare officers in Dublin, I think the Dublin Corporation employed two or something. So people didn't have the services that we now have available if they want help. So the publican played a role, like apparently hairdressers today play a role (laughs) for for therapy. And Uh, the poor publican had to listen to people's problems. And uh, if they got themselves into strife with the police, you could be called upon to, to do bail. And the most embarrassing one was when, when two blokes, one took an interest in somebody else's wife, and not in the pub, somewhere else they had a bit of a fisticuffs, and both got arrested. And of course they both approached my stepfather to bail them out. Uh, so it was more in my stepfather's time, because I was too young in my father's time. But in my stepfather's time, I saw numerous things where, you, you know, you might try to help get somebody a job. Um, I can remember being sent out, because we had the only phone really in the neighbourhood, and uh, somebody in hospital would phone up the pub and say, can you go out and get so-and-so, you know. And I remember going down, and that's how I got to know what a tenement was like and uh, what it smelled like. And there were tenements in our street crowded with people. And I would go down and say, somebody wants you, and they'd come back and talk on the phone. So the publican was definitely there <laughs> for everybody's shoulder. <laughs>
0: The great Irish playwright, Brendan Behan, was often in your stepfather's pub. Uh, he always described himself as a drinker with a writing problem, as I recall. <laughs> Brendan Behan, do you remember him? What, and what do you remember of him? I, own,
1: I remember looking at him. I, he, he used to come into the pub, uh, but people were always wanting to talk to him. So I never personally was chatting to Brendan Behan. I was only a teenager but Brendan, how we got to know him originally, he was a painter and a decorator, and he was painting and decorating in our area, and he was coming to the pub. So that's how my stepfather first got to know him. And of course, my stepfather was Jim Bean, and Brendan was dying to find it out that he was a relation and he was researching it. And much to the delight of my stepfather, he never established any relationship between the Beans of Port Arlington and the Beans of Dublin. So Brendan was a character, but as I say, people, a lot of the public liked to come up to Brendan. He would just wander around the place. And when he got old, of course, he looked terrible. He looked terrible. His teeth were missing and he'd he'd be wandering the streets with his wife about two metres behind him. And every character that thought he had an idea for a good play or something would come up to him. Because, of course, he'd had successful plays on the London stage and on Broadway, as well as his books. And so uh,
0: he was a sad figure in the end. I've seen an interview with him. It's on YouTube at the moment. Mm. And he's sitting in an in Irish pub, which may well have been <laughs> the family pub, your family pub, and he's very worse for wear for drink. But mm. he's still quite funny, even oh. though he's really very drunk. Yeah. I wonder if you observing those characters over time led to your decision to become a non-drinker yourself, Fergus.
1: Yes, uh, it certainly influenced me uh, I, because it was a refuge for many people to come into a pub at night. They lived in very poor housing, crowded with children, family, the whole story, and there was a refuge. So you had people came in every day, and you would feel sometimes they should be at home, and how can they afford to be putting money on beer? And so, yes, I didn't have to face much drunkenness, which sometimes I hear in Australian pubs is a feature Saturday night or something. But we didn't have much of that because the people did not have the money to get drunk. So the only time you saw intoxicated people really was uh, around Christmas Eve because uh, they didn't have the money to get very drunk. And and often uh, we used to joke about it that some of the people, all they could afford maybe was one big pint of Guinness a day or maybe two, and they would literally sit on their hands... <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, at the, uh, they'd sit on their hands uh, and uh, save that pint of beer all morning and all evening if necessary. Uh, so yes we saw the, the people and then of course you saw maybe the office types and people who maybe had a little bit of a problem and uh, we had one story I remember of a chap who phoned up, he was a barrister and he phoned up one day and asked our porter would he go across to the pawnbroker's opposite to to see did he leave his brief there? And if he didn't leave it in the pawnbrokers, did he leave it in the bookies? (laughs) And um, I think that was sort of experience led my mother to have the view that drink was a great Mm leveller. She believed drink was a great leveller. And I felt I it was unnecessary. I just really felt it was unnecessary. I didn't come away shocked. I happened to be a teetotaler. But I think people drinking casually, uh, informally having a drink, but consistent drinking, like uh, going in every day and the drinking, well, it did put me off, and I felt it was unnecessary. So I may be very unwise in my political youth, but uh, I think I was wise that I decided alcohol and tobacco, I didn't have the money or the interest, and and what were they going to do for me?
0: Podcast, broadcast,
1: and online. You're listening to
0: Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au/slash conversations. So, Ireland is famously England's first overseas colony and Ireland's independence was hard won from England in the early 20th century, and you, like every other Irish school kid, would have been brought up with a lot of Irish history. What was it that led you towards the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, Fergus?
1: Well, well, as you say, there was a very anti-British feeling when I was growing up. They may not want to talk about the Civil War, but there was certainly a very anti-British feeling And you got that often from teachers. My stepfather was into that category too. And we must remember that the De Valera was in power in government for most of my youth. And he and all his cabinet were were ex-IRA people. And you had the Sunday Press, the Irish newspaper, controlled by the De Valera people. And uh, it was running stories about IRA, you know, wartime stories. So it made it sound exciting. Uh, You know, it influenced a lot of people. Now, most people didn't do anything about it, but like in every other situation, some young people do get influenced. And I obviously was interested in that. And I I went away to brush up on my Gaelic because without Gaelic, you couldn't get your leave certificate. So I spent a month in the Gaelic in west coast of Ireland acquiring some more Gaelic so I could get that pass mark, which I did get. And there... Three blokes came on their holidays, and there's where I met three people, three very pleasant chaps in their late 20s or something, and they were members of the IRA. And they saw me reading this book about the exploits of the IRA, exciting exploits, and they got me talking. And then they gave me the newspaper, The United Irishman, which was very
0: pro-IRA. See, I'm, I'm a little um, in the dark about the status of the IRA in the Republic of Ireland in those days. Because I'm not, it was actually kind of officially illegal. As an yes. Or, and, and it was also becoming a Marxist organisation to some extent at that point. Oh, uh, that was a bit later. That was a bit later. I
1: think that was after my time. Before the Provisional IRA, provisional IRA got which in, became the main IRA. The, the, I think they started <laughs> yeah. to change and the, then they seemed to be moving more into the political the market left. side. Yes. And then, wow, these Provisional IRA, which to me are just terrorists, they came about.
0: So, with these hard men who approached you? Were, did you get a sense of their hardness? Uh, no,
1: no, no, I didn't. They were very pleasant people. They just seemed to be older people imbued with the same. Feeling that I had that the the workers and people hadn't really benefited from a new independent nation.
0: So, what was the reality of being in the IRA and Sinn Fein like for you, and why why were you so turned off by it, uh, and reasonably quickly?
1: Well, yes, it was pretty quickly. I I joined at sixteen, and before I turned nineteen, I was disillusioned completely, and became opposed to them. Sinn Fein really wasn't interested. All that much in freedom, you know, the freedom was their idea of freedom. I began to feel they're not terribly interested in the other community, the Protestant community. How are we going to persuade them to join us by attacking them? And in an election in Northern Ireland where there were 12 seats to the House of Commons, they only won two seats. And I know there was gerrymandering and everything else. But I felt that told me something, that the, even the people in Northern Ireland weren't wrapped with the idea in vein.
0: So fast forwarding a bit here, you were ambitious to see the world, and you did. You studied and became a chartered accountant. You went to Montreal in Canada, then to Washington DC, where you worked for the World Bank, and then eventually decided to... Settle in Australia. Why, why Australia after? I mean, it's pretty heady work working for the World Bank in Washington, Fergus, yeah. I would have thought. Why, why come to Australia?
1: Well, I always thought working for an international organisation would be wonderful. But I came to realise that, of course, international organisations are a great number of people from different countries with very different attitudes, and it makes it for a difficult workforce. And I observed there was a group of people in the World Bank that seemed to be very laid back. Uh, And uh, they seemed to get on well with each other. They didn't seem to find it necessary to talk down to you. They didn't seem necessary to talk down to each other. The senior people and the junior people, if they wanted to go bowling, they went bowling. And I said to myself, who are these strange people? <laughs> I really must go and see these strange people.
0: That speak a ver- version of English that I can barely understand. Yeah.
1: So that's, how <laughs> I, that's my happy Australian story. Really?
0: So, so was there something in what you saw of Australian egalitarianism that reminded you of your childhood in Dublin?
1: Yes, I think it was Washington uh, it made me feel that I was not going to ever to be an American. I didn't go to their high school or their college, and I didn't have their background. Nothing against Americans, but I thought it wasn't for me. And I found in Australia, certainly in the 60s, it was an ideal country for a migrant to come to, compared to some of the other countries. Like Canada, it was a wonderful country, but a terrible climate. And I can't see why anyone would migrate to Canada if somebody said you can come to Australia. I, I don't understand that. Two winters in Montreal was quite enough that was for it, me. That
0: was it. That was it. So you, you came to Australia, you met your wife, Alison, you had a son, then adopted three beautiful kids from Vietnam and from China, Hong Kong. So you establish a family in Australia with Chinese, Vietnamese, Irish, Kiwi heritage, right, right across the board, which is, by today's standards, a classic Australian family, really. <laughs> but it wouldn't have been back then in the seventies, well, was it?
1: No, multinational families or sort of people would look at you.
0: You did Worked for a bunch of different firms. You spent time in Papua New Guinea, and then you accepted a job with the New South Wales Liberal Party organisation. What was your role uh, in the Liberal Party organisation? Well, at
1: that time, they just introduced election funding restrictions into state and federal. So my first task was as party agent. I was a statutory person responsible for trying to educate MPs and everybody else and making sure we complied with the law. But then I also was a finance manager and party administration. And so I had a number of roles at the beginning.
0: Anyone did anyone ever raise your background with you? Because surely you are the only person to have served in both the IRA and the party of Menzies, well, are not you?
1: <laughs> n- no, nobody knew that. And Bob Edicott, <laughs> who I knew from the 80s, didn't know until I sent him my book. to He kindly read my book some years ago and wrote the foreword for it. And he didn't know it, and he mentions in the foreword about being absolutely amazed <laughs> when he discovered I'd been there. Athenian yeah. agent
0: it's, it's, in the party of Menzies, yeah. yes. That's extraordinary. In the 80s, you were able to observe John Howard quite closely as treasurer under Malcolm Fraser, mm. then as opposition leader. What impression did he make on you as as that kind of uh, figure in the 80s when the Liberal Party went through its long years in the wilderness?
1: Well, Well, I liked him. I found he... Very easy to talk to. I observed him with people, and I, I really liked him.
0: What was he like with everyday people?
1: He was excellent. The first time I met him, we shared a bench at Craft Station, and he was the treasurer of Australia, and he was reading his newspaper next to me. And then he got on the train, and he went to town, and he lugged this big, heavy briefcase up the road to his office in Chifley Square. And I thought, well, I've come from Washington, which is very security-conscious, and here's the Treasurer of Australia. (laughs) So that was my first sighting of him. Then when I joined the party, I was invited with six or seven other people to a boardroom for a a meal with him to meet him. And I observed the way he talked to people there, and he didn't seem to be promoting himself. He just was very quiet. And as you say, he asked at the end of the meal to meet the people who had prepared the meal. He was on his way to winning me, yeah.
0: The ALP has a different. Kind of political culture to the Liberal Party. Uh, they come from. They represent sort of different strands. But I imagine there's a fair bit of overlap. From your observation, is the organisation of the Liberal Party a very different beast from the Labour Party as an organisation?
1: Well, it certainly was, and I suspect it still is, because I think there was more democracy in the Liberal Party. In the Labour Party, I think we still hear a lot about people being appointed to seats, etc. Well, we used to joke about uh, the meeting over Chinese meals in Sussex Street, and they would divvy up who was going to be Prime Minister, who was going to be Premier, who was going to be uh, any other job, their relatives, their friends, their cronies, their supporters from the Union or whatever it was. Outsiders, it was very difficult. It was very difficult, for, I think, for a Labour, for outsiders to come in, whereas the Liberal Party, its pre-selections at that time certainly were, were open to the Party ordinary members. members. Yes. Yeah.
0: These were the years after the election defeat in 1983 to Bob Hawke. So these were years when it was the Peacock-Howard rivalry. As an organisation man, you must have looked upon that rivalry with despair.
1: Yes, I think it was terrible. But the rivalry is seems to be in all parties. It seems to be there and and it's very disappointing to new members, I think, to the Liberal Party and probably to the Labour Party too, that often the people don't want to talk about this education and health and hospitals very much. They're very much focused on how I can stab somebody else in the back and get up and then I will be able to do everything, you know. I understand years and years ago, before I came to Australia, that I had members of Parliament made sure they attended branch meetings and things and talked to the ordinary people. But that got increasingly difficult, I think. The opportunity is lost for people to have input. And, and that, of course, creates disillusionment amongst Bridgetous. the general public. Mm. It's, it's sad.
0: Jack Lang, the former Labour Premier of New South Wales, famously advised Paul Keating. In politics, he said, always put your money on self-interest. It's the horse that's really trying, he said. (laughs) Uh, is Is that too cynical, do you think, or is that about right?
1: No, it isn't. And this is why I admired Bob Ellicott the most, because I think he's the, if not the only, cabinet minister that resigned on principle when Fraser overstepped him as attorney general and and went to the Solicitor General because he didn't like the advice from his Attorney General, and Bob Ellicott said, I'm off. Now, that happens a lot in Britain, but it doesn't seem to mm. happen at all in Australia. If Cabinet Ministers and people have a difference, they wait till they're no longer in the job, and then they have a go with the former Prime Minister or something. Uh, and he actually said, he addressing State Council, heard Bob Ellicott say, there's no such thing as loyalty in politics. There is no such thing people will always find a reason why on this occasion they can't back you or, you know, on this occasion
0: they're not going to be loyal. You'd been a supporter of John Howard in the, in the party and then he was finally elected prime minister in 1996 with a landslide win and you wrote a letter to him. What, what did you say to him in that letter?
1: Well, I had written to him when he lost the leadership at the first time. I wrote to him and said, look, I shouldn't be writing to him. I, I'm an officer of the party. I shouldn't be writing to you. But look, I was horrified the way you were, you know. He was uh, ambushed. Yeah. Ambushed. And I said, look, I, I really think you should have had a better go. And I know that I shouldn't be writing to you. But do keep in mind General de Gaulle, Winston Churchill, Richard Nixon, and all of those people had to wait their time. And he wrote back to me, he said, I don't know what the future is going to be, but I'm going to be available, or some words to that
0: effect. And then when he became Prime Minister, what did you write to him then? Well,
1: I I didn't write anything for the first term, but then there were a few issues that started to bother me. And one of the issues was, of course, the boat people supposedly throwing their children off a vessel into the ocean with the Australian Navy there. Which wasn't
0: true. Yeah. And,
1: and that, I think, was awful for everybody and also for the Navy, I think. Terrible. And also I said, for heaven's sake, if the Aboriginal people would like an apology, what's wrong with giving an apology? And then I got cheeky and I said, I believe that you could lead Australia to be a republic, which he did the exact opposite. So he thanked me very much, personal letter. Thanked me. I agree with some things you say and some I don't, which is typical John Howard. He was very polite. But I think he put my letter on the wrong side of his desk and he went through it and he did the opposite of some of the things I suggested.
0: <laughs> on a daily basis, yeah. he looked at the letter from Ferguson. Goes, Do but I still, opposite, think I, right. I
1: still think I would like him <laughs> if I met him.
0: <laughs> so after your experience now, having worked as a prison visitor all this time, What impressions has that left you with of the prison system and what you think needs to change with the prison system, Fergus?
1: Well, people sometimes say to me, oh, you know, why should I be interested? Why should I be concerned? And I think without people's support, we won't get anywhere. And I say to them, well, how do you know that you or some member of your family is not someday going to find yourself in prison, you know? You're quite sure you're never going to take pharmaceuticals that are authorised and have a drink maybe later and knock down a child in a pedestrian crossing or something, you, you no know, member of your family could ever, that couldn't happen to them. And of course, if that doesn't work with them, if they don't work, then I try to hit them in the pocket. And I say, do you really want to spend $100,000 a year securing somebody in prison? Wouldn't you rather some of that money go to a person in an old people's home or a school or somewhere else? Wouldn't you rather that money rather than incarcerating in prison where they're likely to come out with more skills to break the law than they had when they went in so if i can't win those two arguments i give up
0: <laughs> it used to be called the penal system yeah which we get the word punishment now we call it the corrections system, which is a bit more Orwellian, I think, funnily enough, as a term. We're correcting the prisoner. What, what do you think of that term? Well, I correct- think
1: it's the wrong title. For most of them, it's not the title. I think there has to be prisons for violent prisoners. So I have no crimes about that, but the rest of the people, I think, should be in corrective services centres, which are designed to help them come out better than they went in, because about a third of the Prism are in there as a result of drug-related problems. About a third of them have had some contact on mental health issues. And I think Corrective Services has got to look at helping those people more. There are people in Corrective Services who would like to do it. I'm not knocking Corrective Services. The parliamentarians have got around Australia, have got to, lead, and the community's got to convince them to change.
0: When was the last time you went back to Ireland? Seven years ago. My word, it's changed. Is it strange for you being back in Dublin, the Dublin you grew up in where there wasn't much money, still getting over the Civil War and all of that, to see what life is like in the Celtic Tiger these days? (laughs) Well,
1: it seems very much sometimes like I'm in Sydney when I'm in Dublin. Mm. When I see the people carrying their cups of coffee back to the office, I think I could be in Sydney. The cast has changed. The cast I knew in Lower Mound Street, all those people are virtually gone, and likewise the working population has been totally replaced by young people who have grown up, and many of them in that l- last generation who, from the 90s, have grown up under different attitudes and different systems. These, and, are,
0: these are young people who might otherwise have left Ireland, as they yes. did in the past, as yeah. you did, yes.
1: Yeah, and, and employment prospects helped that. Education was widened, then people started to question some of the uh, laws that were there, and... and get them changed even ahead of Australia. You're talking about same-sex marriage. Same-sex marriage, abortion was another one, things that were unheard of. It was unheard of in my time. You couldn't even mention ever loosening up in something, censorship or things like that, or or somebody would suggest that perhaps you should go to Australia maybe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is Is the family pub still there?
1: The pub is still there, and I have visited the people. There's more food than grog in it, but I visited the lady What's there. It's a gastro
0: pub now, is it? Yeah, it's a gastro gastropub. Oh, They've
1: done done it quite well.
0: You've called your memoir Half a Loaf and a Threepenny Bit. What's that about?
1: Well, in Ireland, 90% of the people in the Republic would have taught you the catechism, probably. I remember correctly, the last question was, what is the meaning of the word amen? And the answer was, so be it. And we in Dublin, at least, used to add half a loaf from the shop. New bit.
0: I know you're a man of faith, and I couldn't help but notice when we were talking before we went on air, you were talking about how privileged you were to have served as a prison visitor. It sounds to me it was more than a kind of an obligation of your faith. It sounds like something you really loved, something you genuinely yeah. enjoyed. Is that right?
1: Yes. After a lifetime of searching, really, after a lifetime of searching. Now I could say. I, maybe I should have done that when I first left school. But nobody was talking about being welfare officers or doing a degree in welfare or anything else in those days. And I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have had the background. No, you
0: had to live the life.
1: Yeah, I had to live the life. So I, I can't say I'd go record. back. But I certainly, if in midlife I had been able to do the change, but by that stage I had the obligation of four children and an obligation to the
0: bank and a few other things. Uh, And it was
1: probably too late, probably too late to change.
0: So all those things you did over four decades, all of that was really training for becoming a prison visitor. Yes. It's fascinating speaking with you, Fergus, and so enjoyable. Thank you so much. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you, Richard. Fergus Hines's memoir is called Half a Loaf and a Thrapany Bit. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. Been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abcnetau conversations. Ever feel clueless during smart convos? Same here. Can't keep up with everything? Don't sweat it, we're in this together. I'm Tegan Taylor, unveiling your new curiosity quencher, Quick Smart. I'll be chatting with clever people about current topics like the ADHD boom, opting out of the law, Disney as a religion, and AI stealing our jobs. Just give me 10 minutes, once a week. I'll be quick, you'll be smarter. It's Quick Smart. Find it now on the ABC Listen app.